by telling you about a deadly disease. Uh, that's what everybody wants to hear about, right? Um, and I thought maybe this isn't appropriate given the fact that, you know, COVID-19 is still a very real thing and it's still around and maybe this isn't the best way. But I would like to start by telling you about this deadly disease and it is far worse than COVID. And I'm not talking this. My goal is not to focus on COVID today. My goal is to focus on this other disease. Okay, but this disease is incredibly deadly. Like if you get this disease, you are almost guaranteed to die. Um, That's a good way to start a sermon, right? You all feeling uplifted yet? Okay, yes, there is a deadly, deadly disease that is far worse than anything that we, we have ever seen before. And see, here's the catch, though. There is a cure, a proven cure for this disease. Proven cure. And it's completely free. Again, not talking about COVID. We're talking about the cure for this disease. Completely free. Requires absolutely nothing of you to receive this cure. You can just get it. This deadly disease can be cured, requiring nothing of you. But see, here's the catch. After you receive this cure, your job then is to take that cure to those around you, those other people who have been infected with this disease. You're supposed to take this cure to those who are around you. I mean, it sounds pretty simple, right? You've been cured from this deadly disease. Wouldn't you want to take that cure to those around you? And you have that ability. You can take the cure to those people who are close to you, your friends, your family, your neighbor who you may or may not like. You can still take them the cure so they don't have to suffer the consequences of this disease. You have the cure. You can then take it. See, there's a problem, though, in that a lot of people don't even realize that they're sick. And if they do realize they're sick... The problem is they don't realize that you've been cured because you still look like you're sick. Hmm. So, wouldn't you want people to know you have the cure? Shouldn't, okay, now you all just know this, right? Um, You you know, you all seen zombies, right? You know what zombies look like? Okay, at least some idea what a zombie looks like. Okay, so you know what a zombie looks like. Now, if you still look like a zombie, is somebody going to believe that you have a way to be alive, like truly alive? Is anybody going to believe that if you still look like a zombie? Probably not. They're probably going to think you're just like them, like you're wandering around like a zombie, just mindlessly looking for something. We're not going to get into all that, but um, just mindlessly wandering around. They're going to think you're just like them. So shouldn't you want to look different? Like you're a cured person. Shouldn't you want to live like a cured person? Of course you should. Of course you should. And of course, most of you all know this is kind of a cheesy way to introduce this. But you all know the disease is sin, right? You all got that, right? I hope you picked up on that pretty early. Like the disease is sin. You know, it kills like 100% of people infected with it. Like everybody. The disease is sin. And there is a cure. There's a cure for that sin. His name is Jesus. I would like to introduce you at some point. But the truth is, if Christians walk around looking like the walking dead, look like the rest of the world, are people going to think we really have the answer to their disease? Probably not. The truth is, the truth is that the way we live matters. See, uh, we talked about this last week. This is actually the main thrust of what we talked about last week. We talked about um, practical application for our lives, right? As Paul was writing to Titus and he starts talking about how older men are to live, older women, younger women, younger men. And we talked about how servants are supposed to be trustworthy and everything. And we talked about all of those things. But today we're going to go the next step and we're going to show you why all of that matters. 
Paul explains why all of that matters. Like, why does the way we live really matter, right? Because we're saved by, by grace through faith in Christ, not through any actions. So do our actions really matter? And the answer is a resounding, yes, your actions matter. Of course they matter. They absolutely always matter. See, because the truth is, the truth is, the way that you believe will necessarily affect the way that you behave. What you believe will affect how you behave. Every time. Okay, I've got a fun example here that I would like to throw out just real quick, and I hope this works the way I think it will. Um, for example, if, if I said that I believe, and this is going to make my mic pop, so we'll see what happens. But if I said, I believe as I walk down this aisle, nobody's going to jump out and tackle me. Now, see, if I believe somebody was, I knew that was going to come, and I knew it was going to be you. Um, if I said that, and I really believe somebody was going to tackle me, I probably wouldn't. See, if I believe tackle me, he's bigger than me, he'd hurt me. Um, if I really believed he was going to hurt me, would I have walked down the aisle? No, I wouldn't have. Of course not. I don't want to get hurt. What I believe affects how I behave. For example, if I was to get on I-29 and head south, and I believe, now I do believe those bridges are going to support the weight of my car. Some of you are thinking, yeah, maybe you shouldn't believe that. But I do. I believe that those bridges will support the weight of my car. So I have no issues driving across those bridges. Now, if I believed one of those bridges was not going to hold my car, that would affect the way I behave. I would go a different route. What we believe affects how we behave. Okay? So if we say we believe in Jesus, will that affect the way that we behave? Absolutely it will. Absolutely it will. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 22 actually gets to that point. As, as James is talking about Abraham here, he says, You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. See, James, well, a lot of what the letter of James does is it, it connects these ideas of faith and works, right? Faith is, in a lot of ways, proven by your works. They work together. It's not like these faith and works, they're separate things. In a lot of ways, they're tied together. Because what you believe will affect how you behave. Your faith will affect your works. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with that? Y'all good? Okay, if we're on the same page then, let's see why these things matter so much. Okay, let's stand together. We're going to be in Titus today. Um, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. We are going to begin reading in verse 11. In verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a righteous and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, cleanse, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one dis disregard you. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So today, I want to show you, show you why we do what we say that Christians are supposed to do. See, the temptation is just to think of Christianity as a list of things to do, and I get that. And even sometimes as I preach, I start thinking, like, I'm just telling people, like, this is what you're supposed to do instead of what you're supposed to believe. But what you believe will affect what you do, okay? So that's why we went through that whole spiel. 
But that's the idea that I want to get to. I want to show you why, why Paul was writing to Titus saying, here's what it looks like to be a mature follower. This is why you need somebody, uh, a mature believer in your life that can speak into your life. This is why you need qualified leaders in the church. This is why you live a sensible or a, uh, uh, an upright, a godly life. This is the reason for all of these things. And he starts out here by saying, for. This little three-letter word, for. Okay? And in the Greek, it's also a three-letter word, so it seems in, insignificant. This, three little, this little three-letter word, in the Greek, it's gar, not the fish. Um, it's gar. Um, and that this word, this word just means for, or this is the reason for everything we just said. This is an explanation for why, why it is that we live this sensible, self-controlled, mature being. This is why we're teachers of good things. This is why we're devoted or trustworthy. This is why we take life so seriously. He says, because this is true. For this reason, we do all of this. Men, women, servants live this way for this is true. All of it's done here. And really, I'm going to be honest with you, there's one reason, um, one reason for all of this, but I I kind of broke it down into four parts um, because I think Paul breaks it down into multiple parts. So I want to show you why it is that we live the way that... Paul tells Titus that we're supposed to live, why it is that our attitudes are to be changed. And of course, you all know that the answer is Jesus, right? Okay, you all know the preacher is going to sit up here and say the answer is Jesus. And the answer, that's correct. That is the one reason we live differently, because of Jesus. But I want to show you four things he did, four reasons that the way we live truly matters. Okay? So, first, the way we live matters because Jesus came. The way that we live matters because Jesus came. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Um, We need to stop for just a moment because we need to appreciate this verse. This one verse. Because this is awesome. Like this, okay, y'all, I get kind of excited. This This is the good stuff right here. Not that the rest of it isn't good, but this is, this is so good. The grace of God has appeared. We couldn't possibly spend enough time on this verse. Jesus here is called the grace of God. Because that's who he's talking about, right? The grace of God has appeared. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus appeared. Jesus is the grace of God. Let that sink in for just a minute. And this word grace, of course, it's translated that way. In the Greek, it's the word charis. And this word means grace or favor or gift or, or it could be translated as charity. Jesus is God's gift to us. He is his gift. It wasn't something that was earned or taken. It was just gifted. Like God's like, I love you, so I'm going to give you a gift. What an awesome truth. And this word carries the idea of 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 favor that an inferior finds in the eyes of his superior, right? We have found favor in the eyes of God, not because we were somehow deserving of it, but because he favored us, just because he loved us. So he gave us, he poured his favor. Jesus is the favor of God that has been poured on us, despite our inferiority. God still placed his favor on us. And it says that the grace of God appeared. It appeared. Jesus appeared. And this, this I don't want to get too bogged down with the Greek, but this is so good. And y'all, this, this word might resonate with you a little bit. This is the Greek word epiphany. 
The Greek word epiphany. The grace of God appeared. And, and a lot of, I just love this, in a lot of extra biblical um, a lot of extra biblical writings, the word epiphany was used as a metaphor for the sunrise. Okay? So the grace of God just happened. Like, it just appeared. Like the sunrise. Like, y'all, y'all can't make the sun rise. You know what? Last night as the wind was howling and like I felt like my house was going to blow over, I kind of would have liked for the sun just to rise so I could at least see what's going on. Um, but I couldn't make that happen. It just, but this morning, it happened. Outside of my control, outside of your control, it just, it, it happened. The grace of God appeared, is what he says. Just like that sunrise, there's nothing you can do to make it happen, it just does. And it, what this word means, it's a moment of sudden revelation or insight, and Jesus was this sudden revelation, this revealing of God. Whew. I told you, this one verse is so rich. Like, Jesus just he appeared. He just came. God's grace just showed. And I don't want to overemphasize this one verse, but just think about the grace of God that has appeared. And if there is anything that, should, that can change the way that you live, it's the truth that the grace of God has shown up. Not like we made the grace of God. We earned the grace of God. We caused the grace of God to show up on us. Oh no, the grace of God just appeared. It was this epiphany, that just this sudden revelation. God showed up. Woo! That should change our lives. While we were still dead in our sins, God showed his favor on us just like that. And he says he brought salvation for all people. All people. This means every single person. Just to emphasize this point a little bit, that it's for all people. Um, (laughs) This, this word all in the Greek, of course, I wanted to be cheesy and be like, you know what all means? It means all, right? Um, and it does, by the way. It means all or every. But it, I think this is interesting because it's done, I think, for emphasis and maybe for grammatical structure. But uh, the word all is even written in the plural here. Like, what's the plural of all? It's like all y'all. Um, it's like everything. That's all. I don't, it doesn't get any more than that. That's all of it. And the grace of God appeared for all people. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want to sit up here and make you all think I'm teaching some sort of universalism, like every single person is going to be saved from their sin. Um, I don't want to teach that because that's not, that is not biblical, um, and I don't believe that to be true. But what this is teaching very clearly is that not all will be saved, but everyone can be saved. And this is why it matters that we live the way God's told us to live. This is why our lives are so important, that we live according to God's word. People should see the grace of God that has appeared just radiating through your life. Like, they should see and believe, like, okay, something has changed. Something happened. Something's different. In other words, whenever they see you, they should see maybe that person that used to be an addict, but they're not anymore because the grace of God appeared, freeing them from that. Or that person who used to be stuck in adultery, but they've been forgiven by the grace of God that appeared. Something changed. Or uh, fill in the blank, that person who used to be hateful, arrogant, immature, unwise. Go on, fill in whatever you want there. That person can be changed because the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. That's good news. So... Salvation is available for anyone who repents and believes, and this is why the way we live matters, because Jesus came. Second reason it matters is the way that we live matters because Jesus instructed. 
Jesus instructed. We get down to verse 12 and it says, The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So Jesus, the grace of God who appeared, he instructed, right? He, he taught something. And who did he teach it to? Paul says, us. The grace of God appeared and he instructed us. And who is us? I think that's a good question to ask. Like, who is Jesus instructing? Well, I believe Paul's talking about the church. Us, the believers. He came and he instructed the church. He instructed those who belong to him. And what did he instruct? Well, I think the instruction here, the way that Paul lays it out, is pretty simple. Pretty simple. It comes in two parts. It's, first of all, how we live and how we don't live. That's pretty simple, right? That's what Jesus came to instruct. First of all, he taught us to reject sin. He says, deny godlessness and worldly lusts. And this word deny, it's not just like, okay, well, just yeah, kind of like, don't be like connected to it. No, it's worse. It's stronger than that. This word means to repudiate, like be absolutely disgusted by sin. See, here's the thing. I think the church in a lot of ways has become like friend or, or sin friendly. Like, it's not like we want to just call a sin a sin and just, like, cast it out of our lives. We're like, well, you know, Jesus came to save sinners, so it's, it's okay. No, it's not. We should repudiate sin. The word means to disown. Like, absolutely cast sin out of your life. It's not, the analogy I like to use is, is sin isn't some friendly little kitten that you can just let hang around and pet it every once in a while. No, it's a roaring lion that's going to devour you. We should repudiate sin, deny godlessness and worldly lusts, deny those things, absolutely reject them in our lives. We need to call sin what it is and get it out. And not just what we want to be sin, but what the Bible says is sin. We need to cast those things out of our lives. So that's the negative side. And then he gives the positive instruction. He says not only to cast those things out, but to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly life. That sounds a lot like what we talked about last week, right? A lot like what we talked about last week. This positive instruction. See, but there's a funny thing. Um, We're really good at being against something. Y'all ever notice that? We're really good about being against stuff. Y'all ever felt that at all? Or am I the only one? Like, I know, like, in a heartbeat what I'm against. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm against it. I just, like, there's a knee-jerk reaction. I'm like, no, I'm out. I don't want any of that. But... People really know. And if you want to know what somebody is against, go to Facebook and find them, click on their feed, and just start scrolling down. You will know what they are against in a heartbeat. Like, it's really easy to figure out what people are against. But the question then becomes, what are you for? That's a little harder to figure out sometimes. What are you really for in life? Like, we need to not just reject sin and say, okay, we're against all of this stuff. We need to tell people what we are for. The positive side, this, this sensible and righteous and godly life. We need to strive for Christian maturity in our lives and make it clear that that's what we're for. We're for people being grown up in the faith that they have and looking more like Jesus. That's what we're for. And it's all because that's what Jesus instructed. He instructed people to live this sensible, righteous, and godly life and to reject sin in their lives. To repent and to follow him. That's what he was for. And that's what he instructed. So, if we trust Jesus, our lives will reflect it. So the way we live matters because Jesus came, because he instructed. Third, the way we live matters because Jesus is coming. Okay, this is a fun point. This is a fun point. But verse 13 goes on. Jesus instructed us to live and... uh, 
He says, live this way in this current age. And then he says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live this sensible, righteous, godly life all while we wait. We are waiting right now for this blessed hope. And what is this blessed hope? He says that it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, did you notice he says, for the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? By the way, Paul just called Jesus God. Um, just a quick side note, but we don't have time to dive in that this morning. But uh, let's rewind just, just for a minute. And let's rewind back up to verse 11 and, and look at what it says in verse 11. Okay, Verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's past tense, right? Just so that we're all on the same page. I'm not an English major, but I know that the grace of God has appeared means that that's something that happened in the past. That's past tense, right? We got an English teacher in the room, past tense. We like that. Okay. But now he's saying we are waiting for the appearing, something that's going to happen in the future. So he has appeared, but he will appear. Now, I don't believe that Paul's contradicting himself, just so we're all clear. But he's talking about two separate appearings, right? Not the same one. Now, I want to admit, this may be review for some of you. um, But for some of you, this may be a mind-blowing concept. Um, I have actually talked to people who are, I'll I'll say, Christian-friendly. Who want to be believers, who maybe even think that they are on some level. But they're like, okay, so you're telling me that Jesus who died and ascended into heaven, someday he's going to come back and, like... Yeah, that's absolutely what I believe. Absolutely. Jesus came once and he brought salvation. Now, the first time Jesus came, it was complete. Like, it was, he did what he needed to do. He did the work he came to do. He, he defeated sin. He conquered sin and death and hell. He did what he did. And as he died on the cross in, in our place, he said, it is finished. No more work needs to be done for your salvation. You can be saved because of what Jesus has done right now. He doesn't need to do something else. There's not something else you've got to do. That is all completed because he appeared the first time. Jesus did all of that. But we live in this interesting time that, that uh, a lot of Bible scholars call the, the already but not yet. Like Jesus has already come and won the victory, but this not yet where he's still, the consummation of his final victory is still yet to be seen. Like we know he wins because we've got the end of the story, but the final consummation of that is still coming. Right? So we live in this already but not yet kind of place. All right, But with that ultimate consummation coming, I just want to show you how many times in the Bible, like this is just a small picture of how many times the Bible talks about a second coming. Jesus will come again, and we can trust that, because he says it over and over again. In his word, it says, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And by the way, this is Jesus saying, the Son of Man, when you see him in his coming, like, this is Jesus, the Son of Man, He's referred to himself in this way already. And now he says, when he comes. Now, some of his disciples are probably sitting there, wait, when the Son of Man, in his coming, you're already here. Jesus is talking about something in the future, something that is still yet to come. He's coming again. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Right after Jesus ascends to heaven, these angels show up and they, they talk to, the, to, to Jesus' followers. And they, say, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. He went into heaven, and he's coming back. Yeah, 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, it says, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Again, talking about when Jesus comes again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, a second time, not to bear sin, work's already been done, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. Jesus is coming again. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. How about Revelation chapter 1, verse 7? It says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Do you all know Jesus is coming again? Huh. Yeah. That's a pretty big deal. Because we have the blessed hope that Jesus is coming again. I expected somebody to jump up and be like, amen, like, amen and amen, let it be so. That is good news. Y'all, the hope isn't something like, like this. It's not even like this. It's like, I hope I win the lottery, which, by the way, is a problem because I don't play the lottery. Okay? But I could say, I hope I win the lottery. I can say that. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about this blessed hope. That's not what we're talking about. This word hope actually refers to an expectation. Something that we expect will happen. We wait for the blessed expectation that Jesus is coming again. And of course that should change the way we live today. I mean, just think about it. If we expect that Jesus is going to come again soon, it's going to change the way we live. And I'll I'll just show you, okay? If I told you right now, with absolute certainty, that tomorrow, because we... uh, Are you all Kansas City sports fans? If I told you tomorrow, Patrick Mahomes, right? You all know who he is? No, nobody knows. He's kind of, he's not very popular. Um, but Patrick Mahomes, if he was, he's going to be here tomorrow. You can take pictures with him, sign autographs with him. You can, maybe you can even give him a hug. Who knows? Um, but he's going to be here tomorrow. That will change the way you live. I promise it would. It would. Some of you, some of you are going to start thinking, wait, he's going to be here, like in this building. That means we better start cleaning up right now. That means we better start organizing the chairs in the right way so people can get to them. We better rope some of this stuff off so that people can walk in and we can keep the flow through. We better get a timer or something because somebody's going to take an hour with him because, Jared, you talk too long. Um, something's going to come up, and we just need to make sure we have all this organized. And you're going to start thinking, okay, we need to change some things so that we can make this work. Some of you are going to right now, while we're talking, if I told you that, you'd pull out your phone and look at your calendar like, okay, we're supposed to meet somebody for lunch tomorrow, but we can move that to another day because Patrick's going to be in the house. So we're going to be there. And it will change the way you live because you're going to start restructuring your life so that you can make sure you're here to meet Patrick Mahomes. Okay? Or maybe some of you, you're going to go home and you're going to start calling your friends and your family. Uh, don't be grunting like, you know, it's just Patrick Mahomes. He's not Tom Brady. Mm-hmm, I saw that. Um, but still, but still. Okay, some of you are going to go home and you're going to start calling family. You're going to start calling friends like, hey, tomorrow at Christian Fellowship Church, Patrick's going to be there. So you've got to make sure that you restructure your lives so that you can be here and you can meet this guy. Like, we're going to get excited and stuff's going to change. You know what? Somebody far more important than Patrick Mahomes is going to return someday. What do you want to be doing whenever he comes back? Will that change the way you live? I hope you see that it will. If you believe that something is inconsequential as an NFL football player being here would change your life, how much more should the God of the universe showing up change your life? Woo! Y'all, Jesus is coming again, and that should change the way we live. So, the way we live matters because Jesus came, He instructed, He is coming. And fourth, the way we live matters because Jesus saves. 
Because Jesus saves. Verse 14 says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. Excuse me. He gave Himself for us. And again, just like we could have spent all of our time on verse 11, we could spend all of our time right here just going around sharing how Jesus gave Himself for us. Like, that's, that's the gospel. Jesus came, he laid down his life for even sinners like me. Yeah. The God of the universe condescended to my level and died for me. He gave himself for us to redeem us. And this means to pay the price for. That's what this was. This is like the redeem means it's like a financial transaction. Purchasing of a slave is the way it was used oftentimes in, in the first century. He redeemed us. He purchased us. And I find it interesting. I find it interesting that he gave his life, even though whenever Jewish or Roman leaders had crucified Jesus, they thought that they were taking his life. Right? I mean, they, probably, they really probably believe, we're going to take this guy out. Like, we're going to get rid of the problem, so let's take his life. They didn't take nothing. They didn't take anything. It says very clearly that he gave his life. He laid it down because we, we were on the road to death, like eternal death. And Jesus stepped in and paid the price that we owed. And why? Like, why did he pay my debt or your debt? Why did he do that? Well, the text tells us that he purchased or redeemed us from all lawlessness. And it says, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Hey, Darren, there's that slide back there that says it's not all about you. You want to click on that real quick? Like, like I mean, Jesus did all of this. Like, he, he paid the price. He laid down his life. He gave us a chance at life to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Thank you. Sorry, I'm distrobe. Uh, uh, Yes, but we are saved from sin and death and hell, and we are restored to a relationship, which, by the way, is really good news for you and me. But Jesus did it. Yeah, sure, certainly it was for our good, but he ultimately did it to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And notice, he didn't just save us. We talk about this a lot of times. Not just save us from something, but saving us to something. Like he said that he'd say for himself people to do good works, like eager to do good works. Like, are you just waiting to do good works? Just an- almost anxious, not, not like in a, in a negative connotation, but like ready, just eager to do good works. Man, the, these three things, I, I believe, must mark the life of a believer. A repudiation of sin, like we talked about. A trust in Jesus. And a display of good works. And not for, not just for our glory, but really for His. Like to reflect Him, to show Him in our lives. And if we know the goodness of God in salvation, then I think it's necessary our lives reflect it. What we believe necessarily affects how we behave. And if we believe that Jesus came to save us from our sin, why are we still walking around like the walking dead? Like we have victory over sin. Through Jesus. You don't have to sit in it anymore. You have victory over it. See, I think a lot of times we, we almost walk around as if, well, this is just 
too hard. Or, you know what, I can't overcome this sin. It's, I, you don't understand how hard this is. I just don't believe that to be true. I think Christians should live with a radical sense of victory over any sin or any temptation in our lives. Especially if we believe we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. Like, we've been saved from that sin. Why are we still acting like we're slaves to it? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's always easy. I live the Christian life too. Sin's hard. Our flesh is sinful. But that doesn't mean we have to be slaves to it. We've been set free, so live free lives. The way that we live absolutely matters because God gave us Jesus and he has saved us from our sin. Does your life really reflect that, though? The way we live matters because Jesus came, he instructed, he's coming, and Jesus saved. So what do we do with all that? Well, verse 15 tells us. I love it whenever the text actually tells us what to do with what he's just taught. And he does very clearly, verse 15, he says, Proclaim these things. What things are we to proclaim? All that stuff he just told us about Jesus. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We proclaim these things, and this is part of who we want to be as a church, right? We just spent all, uh, like a month, maybe two months, I don't really want to admit how long it was, but we spent some time, y'all, talking about who we want to be as a church, right? We did that whole Rooted series, um, and we talked about what it is that we wanted to be rooted in, and we talked about what we want to become as a church, right? We want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ. That's who we want to be. We want to be people who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ through the wisdom of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we proclaim Christ, that He came, that He instructed, that He's coming again, that He saves. Like, we should be proclaiming this. And as we do so, we need to be encouraging. That's what He says, encourage So we need to encourage other believers, reminding them of their status before God. Like we should build one another up. A lot of times we have a hard time with this. It's easier, again, to show people what we're against and what we're for. We should be showing brothers and sisters that we are for them. And that we are for God dwelling in them. Like the power of God residing in them. We should be for that. And we should be encouraging those who don't know the saving grace of God to wake up. Of course we should. To know the truth of Jesus. And he says to rebuke with all authority. In other words, we expose the lies of the world with the word of God. We've been given the authority as authorized, represent, authorized representatives, right? We talked about being ambassadors for Christ. Authorized representatives of Jesus. We should recognize that and we should call sin, sin. So let's operate within the authority we've been given, representing Jesus as well as we can. By knowing the word and calling sin a sin, casting it out of our lives and encouraging brothers and sisters to do the same. So, we rebuke with all authority. And finally, Paul commands Titus not to let anyone disregard him. Now, this has a couple of purposes. First of all, Titus was a young man. Um, And he was speaking to people who were older than him, who would have had a a lot more authority, especially in Jewish circles, than he would have. Um, So he says, don't let anybody disregard you. But I think that that rings true for us even now in the 21st century. Let no one disregard you. Um, The message that we have about Jesus is too important to allow someone to disregard us. Like, the church should be that unstoppable force like that goes out and carries the word of God to those around us 
let no one disregard you. See, I've actually felt this. I'll just be honest. I have felt this in my own life, and I've heard people say it because they they almost get upset because Christians want to, and and I'm going to quote for just a minute, push their faith on them. You ever heard anybody say that like, well, I don't want want you to push your faith on me. I don't don't want you to make me, try to make me because you believe something doesn't mean I have to. Don't push your faith on me. And too often, and again, maybe it's just, no, I know it's not just me, but I'm certainly guilty of this also. We try to start a conversation about Jesus, but whenever we get a little bit resistance, we back off because we don't want to push somebody away. Like, we're just... Like, okay, I don't, I don't want you to push it, like, so I'll just, I'll just drop it. See, the problem, if we believe the message we have is really as important as we, we say it is, then shouldn't we almost be pushy with the gospel? Now, certainly, I think that there is a gentleness that we need to carry as we present the gospel. Don't misunderstand. But I think that we should err on the side of being overly aggressive with the gospel. I mean, just... Don't let anybody disregard you. We need to share, not only because we've been commanded to, but because we believe we have the cure to a seemingly incurable disease that is going to kill any single person that's infected with it. And not just like their body dies, like their soul dies. The entirety of that person dies. And if we believe it's that important, then shouldn't we tell people? Um, I thought this was interesting. Um, and I'm almost done, so give me just a minute. Um, I thought that this was really interesting. Um, I, I got this quote from D.L. Moody, and he was talking about the way people live. And, and, and here's what he said. D.L. Moody said this. He said, out of 100 people, out of 100 people outside the church, one might pick up the Bible and read it. But 99 will read the Christian. Okay. Think about that for just a minute. You want me to read it again? I'll be happy to read that again. Okay, out of 100 people outside the church, one might pick up a Bible and read it, but 99 will read the Christian. In other words, people will see the way you live and say, okay, do they really have something that's worth my time? Like, does their life suggest that it's so much better than mine? Okay, now that's not a reason to keep silent. Don't misunderstand. I've also heard people say, you know, preach the gospel or, or, or um, make disciples of all nations and when necessary, use words, right? Okay, I understand what they're getting at and I, I get the point, but you still need to use words. It's very clear that those people who hear can believe, so we need to share the gospel with those people, so open your mouth and speak. And this is not a reason to keep silent, but it's a reminder that we need to be consistent with what we speak. Like, if we really believe, if we really believe that Jesus, Jesus came, first of all, that the grace of God came in Jesus. If we believe that, if we believe that what Jesus taught was important, if we believe he's coming again, and we really believe that a person can be saved from this incurable disease, if we really believe that, then shouldn't that show in our lives? The church should not be walking around like the walking dead. We shouldn't be. Our lives should look different, like we have hope. Our lives should tell the world that what we believe, or what we say we believe, is actually what we believe. Our lives should tell the world that. So, could you say that's true of your life? Does that affect the way you talk to your friends and your family? Does that affect the way that you share the gospel, the urgency with which you share the gospel? Does that affect it? Because it sure should. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, God, uh, I, I want to come to you and, uh, and just thank you, first of all, for this word, um, for this word that Paul sent to Titus and the work that they did not only in Crete, but the work that remains to be done 2,000 years later. And Father, I'm thankful that you've made us a part of that work. Um, I thank you for it. But Lord, uh, more than just getting to um, know what the words say, I'm thankful that we could know the grace of God that has appeared. That we could know that you instructed, that we can know that you're coming again with absolute confidence, with a hopeful expectation. Lord, and that we can know that you truly do fully and completely save. So Lord, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself, that you, show, that you were willing to show your favor on us. So Lord, we thank you so much. And Lord, I also want to take this moment and take this time to, uh, to confess my own sin, both before my brothers and sisters and to you, Lord, that I have not always been faithful. I have not always been consistent in what I say I believe. Um, I don't know how many times there have been that I've had the opportunity, um, a crack in a conversation where I could share the gospel, the hope that we have, um, and passed it up. Um, so, Lord, I, I, I confess my own shortcomings to you today. Lord, I know, however, that I'm not alone. God, I pray that you would help us to really be consistent with what we say we believe. Lord, that you would change our hearts so that we might really, truly cling to it, that we would believe it with every fiber of who we are. God, I pray that you would come and change our hearts so that we could believe that you are, that you have sent your grace, that you sent Jesus to be the grace of God. You showed up when we were hopeless. You were like the sunrise that we all needed that just came and showed your favor on us. Even though we were running the opposite direction. Lord, I'm so thankful that you loved us. Lord, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you were, you were willing. Not only willing, but eager to save us. Lord, to pay our price. Lord, we, we should be eternally grateful. So, Father, today I just want to praise you. I want to thank you for forgiving me of my sin, um, for making a way for us through Jesus. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would send your spirit just to, just to move us so that we could live lives consistent with what we proclaim. Father, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.